Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Everybody hear me okay? As you heard earlier, today we'll be getting the big picture of the book of Acts. I love doing these big picture messages, and this is certainly appropriate to think about the work that we, we see here in this wonderful book in relation to our Mission Sunday today. All right, I think it's quiet now. All right, so Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to start. I just want to bring your attention to the title of this book. I'm assuming that all of you have the same title that I have. If you have something different, I'd really like to know, because all of my Bibles say the same thing. The title of mine here says, The Acts of the Apostles. Does anyone have anything different? No, Nothing different? Well, that's what I have. It says, Acts of the Apostles. Uh, the word Acts is much bigger in my Bible than the other words. It's an interesting title. Uh, the word Acts, by the way, means doings or works. Doings or works, if you put all that together, what do we have? We have the doings of the apostles, the works of the apostles. Now you just think about that title for a moment. What's, what's the title telling us? Well, you don't need to answer that out loud, but the title's saying that the main actors are the apostles. Let me just push back on the title a little bit here. Is that accurate? When you study the book of Acts, is it accurate to say the Acts of the Apostles, or the doings or works of the Apostles? Well, let me just say from the beginning here that titles of the books are not inspired. Okay? The words, all the words of Scripture are, but that title is not inspired. So that's why I'm pushing against that. And by the way, let me, uh, as you study this book, and I'll just show you a few verses here in a moment, but as you study the book of Acts, you'll find that the apostles wouldn't even agree with that title. And I'll show you why. For example, in Acts chapter 1, look at verse 23. Acts chapter 1, verse 23. You tell me, as you read Scripture, let Scripture speak for itself, who is the main actor here? Verse 23 says, They put forward two, by the way, this is, uh, this is post-Judas death, all right? Judas died, uh, and they're trying to pick another apostle. So, that's the context. It says, they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. So I ask, who's the one doing the chosen, the choosing here? Is it the apostles? Or could it possibly be someone else? And the obvious answer is the apostles are telling you it's the Lord who's doing the real choosing here. All right, let me give you another example. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 32. Chapter 2, verse 32. We see the sending of the Holy Spirit, but... Again, let me ask you, is it the apostles that are sending the Spirit, or is it someone else? Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The he, be, the one doing the pouring of the Holy Spirit, is Jesus Christ himself. Another example in chapter 2, look at verse 47. Look at verse 47. It says, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And who added to their number? The Lord added to their number. It's not the apostles adding to their number. All right, one more example, and we'll move on. Chapter 3. Hopefully, four examples is enough. Chapter 3, verse 11. Again, who's the main actor here? Is this, is this really the acts of the apostles, or is it the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's my question. So if we look at chapter 3, verse 11. While he hung, or clung to Peter... This is Peter, he's speaking in Solomon's portico here. And so it says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people 
utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he, he addressed the people. Here's what Peter says. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So who did the healing? Not the apostles. It's Jesus doing the work. So, you may not be as radical as me, but I've actually gone into some of my Bibles and crossed out the word apostles and put Jesus Christ there. (laughs) Uh, You don't have to do that. I'll still love you if you don't. But what are we seeing here? We're seeing Christ doing the healing. It's Christ who's adding to his church. It's Christ who's the one who's sent the Holy Spirit, and Christ is the one who chose the twelfth apostle. So what are these passages doing? They're proving that Christ is still building his church. So if you look in your New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? The Gospels, according to these various men, writing for different purposes to different groups of people. And so... Someone might, if you, if you were to jump from the book of John, the gospel according to John, to the book of Romans, you'd say, well, whoa, wait a minute, the book of John ends with Jesus' death, and then now we're in Rome? What's going on here? There's a huge gap there. What, what's going on? If we didn't have Acts, there'd be a lot of people probably very, very confused, chronologically confused. And so Acts is, is proving Christ is still building the church. Just because he's, he's gone to heaven, he's at the Father's right hand, he's building a home in heaven for all believers, doesn't mean he's no longer active and working in our midst. So Acts contains the activities of the ascended Christ. Acts tells us what to do with the facts that we read in the Gospels. What do we do with all that stuff there? We need to do something. We don't, shouldn't just be hearers, observers. We need to do something. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. So the function of the book of Acts here is proclaim, it's, it's a proclamation, if you will, of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts itself covers the first 30 years of the Christian church. And then you've got all the epistles later on kind of carrying on from there. Well, how did they do in the first 30 years of the Christian church. Well, we read earlier in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what they were told to do by Jesus Christ. Jesus tells them here, this is what he wanted them to do in Acts 1.8. Put your eyeballs on the page there. It says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So how'd they do? Well, that's not really a fair question. You know the rest of the story, don't you? (laughs) But how about in the book of Acts? What does the book of Acts tell us? Well, if you look at the very last verse in the book of Acts, let's see what it says. Because the text today is the book of Acts, so it's not really fair to go beyond that too much. So look, look at the end, the end of the story. Often the first and the last tell you a lot about the book, and it certainly does here. So it ends with the Apostle Paul. And before we read the last verse, let's just back up a little bit to verse 30. It doesn't say Paul's name here, but the context clearly talking about Paul in verse 30. It's Paul lived there. Two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness 
and without hindrance. Now, it doesn't come right out and tell you what's going on, everything is going on here. So how did they do? How did the apostles do? How did the early church do? Well, it just says that Paul lived there. Where is there? Well, again, you look at the context, you know Paul went to Rome. Paul went to the capital city of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world at that time. And Paul's there in Rome. And he welcomed all who came to him. And what is he doing? Just sitting there in prison, grumbling, complaining, right? That's what he's doing, isn't he? No, of course not. He's not, he's not doing that. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's doing this with boldness and without hindrance. Just because he's chained to Roman soldiers or whatever, that, that is not a hindrance to him. So we see the gospel going all the way from Jerusalem throughout the Roman Empire. That's what we see in the book of Acts. And that was all done, by the way, in one generation. It was done without airplanes. It was done without cars. And they had, surprise, no internet back then. Kirsty, you think you have a hard man. Try that. We're, we're blessed to have cars and planes and internets and all other sorts of things. Sure, they're a distraction to a lot of people in many ways, but... These, these are some tools that we as believers can use to minister to people. So, in one generation, they take the gospel. Well, you're going to hear that word. You, you hear it a lot in the Bible. But what does the word gospel mean? I, I'm not going to assume that everybody knows what that means, okay? What does it mean? Well, it just simply means good news. The gospel means good news. So, when you read, for example, the gospel according to John... It's the good news of Jesus Christ's person and work, according to a guy named John. But what news, because I just said that in one generation they took the gospel to the ends of the earth, so what news did they have to take? Well, that's one of my key questions I want to talk about from the book of Acts today. So my first main question for you today is, what is the core message of Christianity? What is the core message of Christianity? <laughs> now, I did a quick Google search. Google's always revealing, isn't it? I, I just have, you want to have a fun search? Just, I, I did this. Core message of Christianity. What is the core message of Christianity? And you'll get all kinds of heresy. All kinds of ideas. Fortunately, there is some good stuff when you do that. But really, what's on Google is not the important thing, is it? We're, we're here to look at God's Word. So, from God's word here, we see the core message of Christianity. And the message preached by the early Christians in the book of Acts was about a person. It's not about religion, it's about a person. His name's Jesus Christ. And this is, by the way, exactly what Jesus commissioned his disciples to do here in chapter 1, as well as in chapter 9. Just, we've already read here in chapter 1. Turn over to chapter 9, and we'll look at this other example here. Chapter 9. This passage is dealing with Saul's conversion. Uh, Saul was converted. Eventually his name became Paul. Look what it says here in just this one verse. Chapter 9, verse 15. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul was to be God's messenger. He was to carry Christ's name to the Gentiles. So you start to get the idea, what is the core message of Christianity? What's your core message? And so Jesus commissioned these disciples and apostles to go around the world to be his witnesses. And what are the, by the way, what does a witness do? Just think about that for a moment. Okay, if... If you're called to court to be a witness, what do you do when you're in court? All right, just keep that imagery in your mind. Are, are you there to talk about sports or other stuff? Right? You're, you're there to talk. You're there to observe. You're there to make a decision if you're on the jury, right? What are you, what are you doing? You're, you're looking at the evidence, examining the evidence, and then you bring the verdict 
You talk about what you see. Jesus called all of us, not just me, the apostles, all of us, to be witnesses of him. Well, specifically, what, what about Jesus are we to be witnesses of? Well, there's three things quickly in the book of Acts we'll see. Number one, you're a witness of Jesus' life. Now, you may not have seen him. Of course you didn't. The apostles did. And occasionally, by the way, these early Christians preached about Jesus' life. But interestingly enough, in the book of Acts, that's not the main thing they talk about. As important as Jesus' life is, by the way, he needed to live the perfect life, which he did. But that was not sufficient. Jesus' perfect life is not sufficient. He had to do a few other things, which becomes part of the core message. And so there's a number of sermons in the book of Acts here, which we're not going to go through all of them. But uh, on the whole, the sermons, they're, they're not filled with biographical information on Jesus' life. It's interesting, they just kind of gloss over that stuff. You know, they might mention some simple facts like Jesus of Nazareth and a few other things, but they don't really talk about that. One of the things they do mainly talk about, though, is Jesus' death. Many times these early Christians talked about Jesus' death and its significance. For example, look at chapter 4. Oh, there's, there's heaps of examples we could look at, but let's just look at one. You'll get the point. Acts chapter 4. Verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So what, what are they talking about here? They're talking about Jesus, of course. Notice Jesus' death is mentioned here. But that's not the only thing they talked about. Because Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? He rose again. So the other main core, the, the, the core message, if you will, of Christianity is Jesus' resurrection. And throughout this book, the undisputed center, if you will, of the early Christians' message was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It really transformed their lives, didn't it? I mean, they went from a you know, common, ordinary group of doubting, pessimistic, uh, failing people to a group that God did extraordinary things with. I want you to notice how uh, Luke, Dr. Luke, who the Holy Spirit used to write this book, how he summarized what they preached here in chapter 4, verse 33. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Without Christ's resurrection, of course, according to 1 Corinthians 15, we have no hope, we have no message, and life is futile. And so this is what Jesus told them to do. Before he ascended, in Acts chapter 1, he said, you're to be my witnesses, and then you take that core message to the ends of the earth. I want you to look at another verse we haven't looked at yet in chapter 1. Chapter 1. Look at verse 22. It says, Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness. Notice the next words. It's not a witness to Christ's life. They're not saying a witness to Christ's death. No, they go beyond that because Christ didn't just live and die. He arose. It says they were witnesses to his resurrection. So when the disciples set about to replace Judas here, they were looking for somebody who could be a witness of Jesus' resurrection. Why? Well, it's because Jesus' resurrection proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is the Son of God. He was the Jewish Messiah. He is the Christ. 
Well, there's great significance of this message. And I just want to share a few verses about the significance of this message. In fact, there's two key verses we see here in the book of Acts that are really summarizing what the early Christians are teaching us. I want you to look at chapter 13. Chapter 13. Look at chapter 13, verse 39. Verse 39, which says, By him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is a key truth we see throughout Scripture. What's the point? right? Why am I even bothering to read that to you? Here's the point. Salvation, justification comes, notice, it comes from what? Believing. Being declared righteous by God comes not from works, it doesn't come from the law of Moses, but clearly, even in the book of Acts, we see it comes by believing. It comes by faith alone. Well, there's another one I want to show you. You'll get the significance of this message by these Two passages. Chapter 15. Look at chapter 15. I want you to see what some of the Jewish Christians were insisting on. Of course, they, you know, they, they follow or tried to follow the law, many of them. And they had a hard time leaving that in many ways. But look what it says here in chapter 15, verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, the apostles and elders, they considered that. What did they do? Well, later on here, we see Peter, he he stands up, he addresses the whole council, and look look what he says in verse 7. Verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It's an amazing statement coming from a Jew. He's saying that salvation, justification is by faith alone. You don't need to do these works of the law to be saved. What is the goal of the message? We've seen the message, but what is the goal? Core message being particularly getting, getting to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us. But what's, why? What's the goal? Well, the goal of the disciples' teaching was for Jesus to be worshipped as God. Jesus was to be worshipped as God. In Acts here... The apostles allowed nobody else to be worshipped as God except Jesus. Why would they do that if he wasn't God? Well, they wouldn't. Uh, I'll just give you a couple examples here. Look at chapter 10. Chapter 10. They had every opportunity to take the glory, to take the worship But in Acts, you don't see them doing that. For example, here in chapter 10, we have uh, this this whole amazing story of Peter receives a vision, Cornelius receives a vision, God brings them together. But let's just focus on a few verses here in chapter 10. Look at verse 25. Verse 25, it says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too... I'm a man. He's deferring the worship. Because Peter knows he's not God. 
Well, Peter's not the only one doing that in the book of Acts. Look at over chapter 14. Chapter 14. In this case, we have Paul, who again refuses to receive worship and points to Christ. Look at chapter 14, verse 8. Verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in likeness of men. Really? Is that what Paul thinks? <laughs> Verse 12. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So again, we see Peter and Paul and all these disciples of Christ they're, they're not willing to receive the worship because it's not about them. We see Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. They, what, why are they doing this? Why are they deferring the worship to Christ? Because they knew they're not the Savior. They knew they weren't the Messiah. They knew that Jesus is. So what is the message of the early Christians? What is the message of the early Christians? What is their good news? Well, here's, here's something I find encouraging is that It's the same message we have to preach. The message hasn't changed. Oh, there's plenty of people who try to change it, though, don't they? But the core message has stayed the same throughout the centuries. And it should stay the same. Unless God decides to change it, which He won't. Because even in heaven, we know in places like Revelation 4 and 5, they're still singing about the Lamb who was slain. And they will for all eternity. So the message isn't going to change. But what is the mission of Jesus? What is the mission of Jesus? Jesus has given a gospel message to his followers. And by the way, he means for it to be taken to all people everywhere. That's a a major movement, if you will. It's it's a movement that is a a big thing throughout the book of Acts. In chapter 6, the church encountered complaints of favoritism. They were, they were getting this favoritism from, from uh, one group against another group, and they're complaining about that. And once the church worked through this particular struggle in Acts 6, growth followed. I want you to see this in Acts 6. Actually, we'll look at a couple. Look at Acts 6. Verse 7. Verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this is coming after a difficult time in the early church, but yet we see they continue to increase, and the numbers multiplying. Even the priests are coming to the Lord. Look at another example in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. 
and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Look at chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 24. Chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Do you see a common theme going on in those three passages? We see God's word, we see multiplication, we see God's blessing, God working in their midst, don't we? And so at this point, we must note that the growth was not a directionless growth. There was direction, there's, there's aim, there's, there's a goal. And it involved several movements here in the book of Acts. And all these things are central to Jesus' mission. Some have said the key verse for the entire book of Acts is Acts 1.8. And, and some have even taken Acts 1.8 and used that to, to make a whole uh, outline for the entire book of Acts. You see, you see the gospel in Jerusalem, it spreads out, Judea, Samaria, and then going to the uttermost part of the earth. There is direction. Uh, and specifically here, there's pattern of growth emerging in three ways. Three movements throughout the book of Acts. None of these are original with me. You've, if you do enough reading, you'll see these various places. But number one, we see the gospel moving from Jews to the Gentiles. It's moving from Jews to Gentiles. You see, what, what is the point here? Well, you need to understand something about Jesus' heart. The heart of, of Jesus is... It, his mission is the world. The world is Jesus' mission. In the first chapter, Jesus commissioned his apostles to preach this good news to all the peoples of the earth. Not just the Jews, not just the Hebrews. In Acts 1.8, it, it, ta- it mentions Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And then in chapter 10, uh, turn over there chapter 10. In chapter 10, we see Peter preached to a Gentile. Ooh. <laughs> now, that may not be significant to you. By the way, a Gentile is just a non-Jew. Just think of it as a, this person is just a non-Jew, someone who's not a Jew. And, and he's told to go preach to this Gentile, this non-Jew by the name of Cornelius. Look at chapter 10, verse 44. Chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, that's the word of God, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So, we see this movement here. Particularly, a great example here in chapter 10. The movement going from the Jews to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. Let's look at another example quickly in chapter 13. Chapter 13. Who do we often think of as the apostle to the Gentiles? Usually we think of Paul, don't we? Not Peter. So look at chapter 13, verse 44. Chapter 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Praise the Lord. Because I think every one of us sitting here are Gentiles, aren't we? As far as I know. Praise God that that light didn't just stay in Jerusalem or in Israel, but it's spread out around the world. So, first of all, we see a movement going on here, which is really showing the heart of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. We see a movement from the Jews to the Gentiles, but... There's a second big movement we see in Acts. It's going from Peter to Paul. From Peter to Paul. Well, on a, on a human level, that is, the two dominant figures in the book of Acts are Peter and Paul. Of course, as I said earlier, of course, Jesus Christ is the, 
the main dominant figure overarching all of these people here. But early in the book of Acts, Peter's the one who is dominating the book. Until Paul comes along, God takes this man by the name of Saul and changes him and converts him from a, from a persecutor of Christ to one who loved Christ. Paul's introduced to us in chapter 8, but he's not called Paul there, he's called Saul. And then in chapter 9, if you would turn there, uh, we see his conversion here in chapter 9, which we're not going to read the whole thing, but let me just read to you verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, that's Paul, or Saul, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Sorry, that's not Paul. Talking about the guy who the Lord sent, Ananias. And he tells him, Go, for he, that's Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So we see this movement from Peter to Paul. We see a movement from the Jews to the Gentiles. But there's a third big movement we see here, and this one's geographically speaking. We see a movement going from Jerusalem to Rome. The fact, by the way, that Acts is set in Jerusalem at the beginning of the book, and at the very end of the book it ends in Rome, is significant. And you say, why, why is that significant? Well, I've, I've put a map up here for you. You can get an idea of the Roman Empire, it, it, was, it was big for those days. Remember, no cars, no planes, no internet, none of that kind of stuff. You have to understand, you'll see, you'll see Rome right there in, in the middle of Italy. It's kind of in the middle, isn't it? Rome was the center of the known world. And eventually Paul comes to Rome, and as a result of Paul's presence in Rome, people were talking about the church. The Bible even says that some of Caesar's household was saved. And so in God's redemptive plan, Jerusalem was set aside and the gospel took root in the Gentile city of Rome and from there it eventually spread throughout the Roman Empire and then throughout the world. And I want, uh, again, notice how the book ends. Look at, look at the very last chapter. Very last chapter. We didn't read all of these verses, but uh, look at verse 28. Chapter 28, verse 28, says, let, uh, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And Paul lived there two whole years in Rome at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Well, Acts is presenting an amazing message, but it goes beyond that. Acts presents an incredible mission as well. But I don't know about you, but as a, I, I, every time I read Acts, I'm, I'm, we're not really fair. I know the end of the story, and I know, you know, I've read the entire Bible. I know what happens, but try to put yourself in their sandals for a moment. What, what if you didn't know the end of the story? How does it end? Amazing message, an incredible mission. But how is that ever going to happen? Think about it. A little group of people, followers of Christ, this man who was nailed to a cross, this Jesus of Nazareth, had a rather radical message. But he died. And he arose. Right, that's my message. Who's going to believe that message, right? That's my message I'm supposed to take. Oh, my. Yeah, this, this, this is tough. Tough message. People don't like that message. So how is this ever going to happen? Well, that's my next question. What means are used to accomplish Jesus' mission? Jesus' mission is being accomplished, but what are the means? How is God going to do this? Well, here, this is encouraging. Because in the book of Acts, we see that God uses people. People. Ordinary, common people. And how are they doing this? Well, in Acts chapter 2, if you would please turn there, in Acts chapter 2 we see that God uses these people to live attractive lives. Now, it's more than, we'll find out it's more than that, but these people didn't just have a message. They backed the message up with their lives. Look at Acts 2 verse 42. 
Acts 2.42. And they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. That's a good description of of an attractive life. Now, by the way, the book of Acts, okay, let's just do a little hermeneutical thing here. Please understand something. The book of Acts is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. There's no commands in the book of Acts. I've, I've heard people take all sorts of things from the book of Acts and do amazing things that they weren't supposed to be doing with it. Okay? This is not a command for all of you to go sell whatever you have and, you know, give it to your church. That's, that, that's not the point, okay? With the... If God lays that upon your heart, by all means, you should do it. But that, it, it, it's not a command coming from this passage. Right? These people, what are they doing? They're loving each other. And what did Jesus say? It's by their love for one another that people would know that you are my disciple. The Christians accomplished their mission by living attractive lives. They were caring for one another. Number two, the means that was used to accomplish Jesus' mission was they, these people, not only did they live the life, they talked about Jesus. They preached the word of God. And the main way the message of this young church spread was through the preaching of God's word. And, and that's one of the reasons why in Acts there's at least ten sermons throughout the book of Acts. They're constantly preaching God's word everywhere they go. We read earlier in Acts chapter 10, but we didn't read the whole thing. Look, look at chapter 10 of, of uh, the story of Cornelius. He's the one, this, this Gentile, this non-Jew who Peter went to visit and preach to. And really, I think this, the story of Cornelius provides one of the clearest examples of, of what they did. They, they preached the word of God. Look at Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Let's just stop there a moment. Interesting description of Cornelius. By the way, as I was studying this, I found some people think that uh, Cornelius was saved before Peter ever came to him. Well, just hold on a moment. If, If you're one of those people thinking that way, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Why would God send Peter if he's already a Christian? God sent Peter because... Peter was needed to preach the word of God to this man who's unsaved. Now, he's doing amazing stuff as an unbeliever, isn't he? He's clearly a a devout man who feared God, but he didn't know Jesus. He's a man of prayer. He's a generous man. He gives to the poor. And so given God's favor toward him, like I said, some have said, hey, Cornelius, he's he's a good example of a holy pagan. (laughs) That's what some have called him. He's an individual whose life commends him to God, but he's not saved. And so if, if I mean, if that's true, which I assume he's not saved, then and, and if you assume that he is saved, then why did God go through all of this trouble of bringing Peter to, to Cornelius in order to share the word of God with him? God sent one angel to Peter. He sent another angel to Cornelius. God is clearly working here and orchestrating all of this. Peter obeys. 
Peter goes, he shares the word of God with this Gentile, which, put yourself in Peter's sandals, that, that's not the easiest thing for him to do. There must have been a lot of peer pressure. Uh, he must have been thinking, okay, if I go and, if I go and talk to these Gentiles, man, I'm, I'm going to get, <laughs> these guys are going to nail me. The Jews are not going to like me. <laughs> Peter does it anyway, he obeys. So to me, it's clear Cornelius, is, he's not already saved. What he needed was God's word. God's word brings life to individuals through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter preaches, and this man gains saving faith. So throughout the book, we see people preaching the word of God. They know the core message. They know who Jesus is. They talk of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They use the word of God, and lives are changed forever. Another thing we see throughout this book is, is that God is sovereign. We see a God who reigns supreme over his creation. And by the way, you, you and I might be tempted to place too much responsibility into man's hands. Okay, I'm not denying man's responsibility. You are saved by faith. You are responsible before God. But sometimes it's, it's easy for us to place too much responsibility into man's hands for accomplishing Jesus' mission, as if it depends all on us. You know, some people trust too much in their own strength, and not enough reliance on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Well, if, if you're tempted to think that way, Gamaliel's wise words offer good counsel to us. Look at chapter 5. Interesting enough, here it comes from a Jewish rabbi. But nevertheless, God even uses people like this to say wise things. <clears throat> Look what Gamaliel says here in chapter 5. Now, by the way, the context. You need to understand something. In the early church, in, in these days of the early church, the disciples were arrested. And in this case here, they're hauled up before this ruling group of Jews called the Sanhedrin. They're in Jerusalem, by the way, at this time. Talk about peer pressure. Uh, I mean, the, the Sanhedrin had, had great power. Uh, they could have these guys killed. They could have them thrown in jail, and, and they did. And so after the, after the apostles spoke here in Acts 5, I want you to see these words. Because Gamaliel, who is on the council, the Jewish ruling council, look what he says, verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. That's an amazing statement. He's clearly backing up the sovereignty of God. He knows who's in charge. <laughs> and so the success of God's mission is going to be done... Even if you refuse to surrender to Christ and be used of Him, God's going to accomplish His mission one way or another. And so, in a very important sense, it's really not left up to us. Okay? It's very easy for us. You know, we, could, we, could, we could complain about the size of our churches and how little money we have and how are we going to go to the ends of the earth. And, man, you know, Kazakhstan needs, needs more men, more churches, and more laborers. And, yes, the laborers are few. <clears throat> Yeah, you know, we can grumble and complain and look at our glass as half empty, or we can 
choose to look at it as half full. Are your eyes on man and all the great difficulties we have? Or are you going to get them off us onto a great God? That's what the book of Acts is challenging us to do. So I want to end by thinking about that for a moment. Our great God whom we serve. I want to think of a few examples. Lest you think it's all dependent on you. <laughs> Let's look at a few examples here. We have some heavenly jailbreaks in the book of Acts. It'd be very easy to say, oh man, these guys are in jail, there's no hope. Oh, woe is me. That's not what they're doing. They're, they're praying for God to do a work. Despite the fact that these people are in jail. Look at Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, look at verse 6. In this case, Peter's in jail. Uh, Acts chapter 12, verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring them out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So God's in control. It obviously wasn't Peter's time to die yet. By the way, I'll just remind you, you are invincible until God wants you dead. God has numbered our days, Psalm says. He knows the exact day you're going to die. You're not going to die a moment earlier or a moment later. Exactly when he wants you to. You are invincible until he wants you to die. So we shouldn't be afraid of doing what God wants us to do. i got a question for you. You think about this heavenly jailbreak here. Well... It'd be quite easy for us to despair, to be despondent. I mean, uh, how can we keep from despairing over this huge, massive task uh, to which Jesus has called the church? He's told us to go to the ends of the earth with this gospel, this core message. Just think about this. Jesus has commanded you and me, the, the church, to spread out, not to stay in Jerusalem, to go to the ends of the earth, and that is a huge task, is it not? Despite the facts we have planes and cars and internet and so forth. But let me ask you, what stops us from giving up? Well, maybe you have given up. Maybe you've given up and you think, man, this is a huge task. How am I going to do this? Well, some of you heard me say, uh, how do you eat an elephant? You eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? How do you climb Mount Everest? One step at a time. Right? Just one foot in front of the other. You, you, you can look at the huge thing and get depressed and say, that ain't going to happen. You can give up or you can say, well, <clears throat> I can take the next step. I can, I can do the next thing that God wants me to do. I, I can talk to that person. I can go there. I can give some money. I can do that. It's amazing what God can do with little things. So what stops us from giving up? If, you, if you're one of those people who's given up, I'm encouraging you to get on board. <laughs> Don't give up. Don't grow weary. One of the things that helps me is, is God's sovereignty. That God is sovereign. He reigns supreme over his creation. And one of the things we see in, uh, about God's sovereignty in the book of Acts is, is the effectual call. The effectual call. God calls people to himself. He's in the business of saving. The Lord saves. And so when you read the book of Acts, you're going to find this comfort. You're going to find this encouragement. And so my friend, I consider you all my friends. 
Are you weary? Are you discouraged? Are you tired? Have you given up? Are you, are you thinking about giving up? Well, then I want you to listen to God's Word. I want you to see in God's Word what He has to say. That God speaks. And when God speaks, there's power. And He acts with power in many, many ways. So let's just look at a few references here in, book, in the book of Acts. Let's start in chapter 2. Chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Look what it says in Acts 2, 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. We see here a promise, a wonderful promise. Now, if your Bible's like mine, you'll notice it looks a little different, maybe from, from the block uh, uh, paragraph, maybe above that. That's showing it's, a, it's coming from the Old Testament. This is, this is coming from the Old Testament. It's a, a promise that, that, that God would pour out His Spirit. And, and it, what, what's going on here? This is Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes here, right? The Holy Spirit pours Himself out on these men and uses them in great ways. What ends up happening? Well, God calls people to repentance. Look at verse 38. God calls people to repentance here in verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God is still calling people to Himself. He hasn't stopped that, by the way. But we also see in the book of Acts that God grants repentance. Not only is He calling people to repentance, He grants repentance. Repentance literally means a change of mind in regards to our sin, and God is in the business of changing our minds about our sin. So look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. Here's Peter reporting to the church, chapter 11. Look at verse 8. Peter says here, verse 8, uh, I said, that's Peter, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or clean has ever entered my mouth. Sorry, that's verse 8. I, I wanted to read verse 18. That's a good verse, but not the one I wanted to read. So look at verse 18, please. No wonder it made no sense. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. My friend, do you understand? You, you, you can't change a person's mind about their sin. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And we see the Holy Spirit constantly doing that in the book of Acts. But we also see God appointing eternal life. God appointing eternal life. Look at verse, or chapter 13, verse 48. Chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's encouraging, my friends. Again, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed. He's the same God as here in Acts chapter 13. When God appoints someone to eternal life, they will believe. That's encouraging. We also see God opening the door of faith in people's lives in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 27. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So again and again, we see God opening doors. Sometimes He shuts doors. In Paul's case, Paul wanted to go to Asia. God says, no, you're not going to Asia, Paul. I'm sending you to Europe. Sometimes God leads through closed doors. 
But we see here God opening the door of faith for these people. But God opens the heart of individuals to respond to the gospel. Look at chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 14. In this case, it's a woman named Lydia. And it says here in 16, verse 14, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. Who opens her heart? The Lord opened her heart. Again, we see Jesus Christ is the main actor here. He's the one doing this work. It's the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Eventually she's baptized and God uses her in great ways. I'm not sure what some of you think, but I I know this is a controversial thing. But some people, they look at the doctrine of election in the Bible and sometimes they're discouraged by that. In fact, unfortunately, it's, it's really sad, but some have have used that to make excuses for their disobedience to God and their lack of evangelism and not being involved in missions. That's, that's a shame. It shouldn't be that way. The, in fact, I firmly believe the doctrine of election is something that's encouraging. It's certainly not what we see here in the book of Acts. We see people who believed in the doctrine of election, and that's actually an exhortation, an encouragement for them to go out. God's going to save people. God's in the business of saving people. So I'm going to go out. I'm going to share the word. I'm going to spread the seed, knowing that some of that seed's going to bear fruit. So, my friends, faith in God should be an encouragement to evangelism, not a discouragement. So what have we seen here so far? Let's just wrap this up. We've seen that God sovereignly uses people, common, ordinary people, to accomplish his purposes, and, and, and in this case, in the book of Acts, what are they doing? His purpose is to spread this good news, spread his gospel, and the gospel is about Jesus, and he wants to spread to the entire world. And that's the message, that is the mission, that is the means of the book of Acts. So what about you? What about you? James 1 says to be a doer of the word not just a hearer only. So what about you? What are you going to do with what you see here in the book of Acts? It's not good enough for us to say, wow, that's great. God is good and God is great. And you walk out the door and forget about the book of Acts the rest of the week and the rest of your life. Not good enough. So what about you? Let me ask you this question. Do you know the message? Do you know the core message of Christianity? Do you know about Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection? That's the core. If you don't know that, then you're not a believer. You're not a believer if you don't know that core message. So, my friend, if you don't know Jesus, his person and his work, you can know. He's he's revealed himself in his word here. He may not be here in person, physically, but you can know him. In fact, the Bible says... That it was written so that we might know, so we can have eternal life. But believers, you need to know this message. How can you be an accurate witness of Jesus Christ, person and work, if you don't know him and that message? You can't. And if you know the message, what are you doing with the message? <laughs> okay? If you know the message and you do nothing with it, Shame on you. Shame on us. Shame on me. Okay, I do. Okay, I'm putting my hand up. I know the message. Sometimes I get a divine appointment. God brings someone across my path, and I chicken out. All right, I admit it. Fear of man gets me sometimes. Or whatever, I just inconvenient or I, oh, easy to come up with excuses for my sin. But what are you doing with the message? God wants you to spread the message. It's a treasure, but it's not one you're supposed to hoard. Okay? Don't hoard it and hide it. Give it away. Give it away. Are you obeying the Great Commission? Which, by the way, according to Matthew 28, the command there is to make disciples. Are you making disciples? Are you a disciple of Christ? If you are, you need to be making disciples yourself. Find someone. To pour your life into. 
And hopefully they'll go out and make disciples. So you multiply yourself. Another question I have for you is this. Are you serving Jesus' mission? Or are you, are you on your own mission or somebody else's mission? You're, you're going to be on a mission. But whose mission? Okay, that's the question. Is it Jesus' mission or yours? You need to challenge yourself. What mission am I on? Hopefully it's Jesus. If not, you need to repent and get with it, don't you? Jesus' mission was his gospel being spread throughout the ends of the earth. He loves his church, which is why he gave himself for his church. So are you being used? Is God using you? God, God's means for accomplishing his mission is you. Very easy for us to say, well, God uses people. Oh, that's great. And it's like, it's somehow it's like people can be oblivious to the fact, hey, I'm a person. You're a person. That includes you. Not just all the people sitting around you. It's you too. God wants to use you. The question is, are we surrendered? Have we yielded ourselves? Are you that clean vessel, that, that instrument that God can use? By the way, I'll just put a plug in here for BLT, okay? Our biblical leadership training classes. Oh, praise the Lord, by the way. We've got, we got some people graduating. Tonight's the last class for book number 10. Praise the Lord. That's encouraging. But you know what? Every one of you should be doing this sort of stuff. Not just these four people graduating. Every one of you need to be trained, used of God, so that you're a useful tool. It's a bit like trying to chop a tree down with a dull axe. You ever tried that? I have. That's not nice. Or a dull chainsaw. It doesn't work very good. It's inefficient. Hard work. And you may never get the job done. So I'm encouraging all of you, get on board. You may not be able to make it to the BLT classes on Sunday night, but maybe if you want to know God's Word, you're going to find a way. That's not the only way. All right? I'm not saying it's the only way, but it's a way, and it's a good way. So I encourage you to, to get trained so you can be used of God. You can be a sharp instrument in His hand. Well, I'll remind you, this only happens by the grace of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who does this work in us. Without Him, without abiding in the vine, who is Christ, we are absolutely nothing. But, of course, with Him, we can do everything. So may God grant us His grace, His Spirit. He's given us His Word. He's empowering us. He's filling us if we are yielded and surrendered to His use. May God use you to accomplish His purposes.